Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Out front next, shot down. One of Putin's prized spy planes crashes to Earth. Ukraine taking credit now as the war with Russia hits two years. So what do Russians think about Putin's invasion? We'll be live in Moscow. Plus, potential new trouble for Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. New cell phone data is raising questions about the timeline of her relationship with her top prosecutor in the Trump election case. And voters in South Carolina, hours away from heading to the polls in the next crucial Republican primary, Nikki Haley Trying to close the gap with Trump, will her tough attacks today help? Let's go out front. Good evening, I'm Jim Shuto, in again tonight for Aaron Burnett. And out front tonight, Putin's prized spy plane shot down. This is new video into out front, which appears to show the moment a Russia A-50 spy plane is blown out of the sky. Ukraine's Air Force is taking credit tonight. This is a rare and crucial aircraft used by Russia to detect incoming Ukrainian missile strikes and to help pick Ukrainian targets on the ground. We are now two years into Russia's brutal, full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The cost in human terms has been enormous and devastating. Many tens of thousands reportedly dead and wounded. Charges of vast war crimes by Russian forces. And Ukrainian cities in ruins. From the beginning, civilians have been the deliberate targets of Russian air attacks. It remains the largest and bloodiest war in Europe since World War II, and it's far from over. In a moment, I'm going to speak with the Prime Minister of Estonia, Kaya Kalas. Her country borders Russia, is a member of NATO, providing critical aid to Ukraine amid concerns that Putin could spread his war to other countries, including NATO allies. That concern is part of the reason Biden is hitting Putin with a new round of punishing U.S. sanctions. I'm announcing more than 500 new sanctions in response to Putin's brutal war of conquest, in response to uh, Alexei Navalny's death. Because make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Alexei's death. And tonight, Alexei Navalny's team is calling the ultimatum that Navalny's mother is facing in order to simply get her son's body back, quote, hell on earth. The Kremlin refusing to hand over Navalny's remains unless his family agrees to a private and closed funeral. Our Matthew Chance is in Moscow, and today he had the chance to speak with Russians about Putin's war in Ukraine now entering its third year. Two years into his special military operation, and the Russian leader seems increasingly isolated. But as Putin commemorates Russia's war dead, he's also vowing to press on, putting his country on a war footing in everything but name. We will continue to strengthen the armed forces in every possible way. We know it is difficult for you, and we will do everything possible to help you complete the mission you have been assigned. 
After months of hard fighting, Russian forces are making gains on the Ukrainian battlefield. Recently taking the ruined town of Avdivka in the country's east. But this was a costly and fragile victory. Even planting a Russian flag on the debris is fraught with risk. But with Russian presidential elections next month, Putin seems keen to bolster his image as a war leader, recently flying in a strategic bomber for the cameras. With no real opponents, Putin doesn't need sky-high ratings. <laughs> but he seems to enjoy public adulation, meeting carefully organized crowds on a campaign visit to the Russian regions. You're the best, cries one young girl in the crowd. In fact, he's the only leader in power for nearly 24 years that many Russians have ever known. We have a good president who will help us and we will win, says this mother. I think the end is near, she adds. Once we get our lands back and destroy all those scum, says this woman, we will win. Yes, we pay a big price, she admits, but it's worth it. But not all Russians agree. For more than a week now, people have been laying flowers at makeshift memorials to Alexei Navalny. The late Russian opposition figure whose unexplained death in an Arctic prison last week has provoked outrage. Privately, many Russians hope this country's direction will eventually change, but few believe that change can happen soon. Matthew joins me now from Moscow. Matthew, I wonder, have we learned anything more about the timing of Navalny's funeral, given the, well, just punishing restrictions the Russian government is posing on his mother, any memorial service? Yeah, well, well, those restrictions have converted into a, an ultimatum with the mm. Russian authorities, according to Navalny's team, saying that she has to decide now uh, whether she is agreeing to a, a private funeral in Moscow or whether uh, the alternative comes into play, which is they say they'll simply bury the remains of Alexei Navalny in that Arctic penal colony. And at the moment, Jim, we just don't know which way the Navalny family and Navalny's mother have, going, uh, have gone. Um, and so it could be any time. Uh, but in the meanwhile, look, people in Russia and across the region are really watching carefully to see what happens next in Russia. No question. Good to have you there in Moscow. Matthew Chance, thanks so much. Out front now, Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kalas. Prime Minister, thanks so much for taking the time today. Good to be with you. Tomorrow, of course, marks the two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian forces, they're running low on ammunition. Russia is gaining ground in the east. Do you fear that two years in, Ukraine may be losing this war? Well, we have to believe in Ukraine's victory, and that means we also have to act accordingly. Uh, that's why we have, you know, several meetings uh, with the other leaders. What more can we do? What more can we send to Ukraine? Because that is the rule of the battlefield, that the, the one who has more ammunition will win. So uh, we can't afford uh, Russia winning. We, we have to support Ukraine so that they can push back. 
European allies have been stepping up, uh, sending more ammunition, new weapons systems, but the U.S. still has not renewed its military assistance to Ukraine. And I wonder, in your view, can Ukraine defend itself without U.S. military aid? Uh, of course, it is very, very difficult. I mean, uh, we in Europe, we try to do everything we can and definitely looking into our warehouses, what more uh, can we give? Uh, but of course, if uh, US would be on board fully, then it would be a huge help. I think we shouldn't underestimate our own power. There's no question uh, which side has more power, but uh, it has to be put in action and, and sent to Ukraine. So that requires everybody uh, who has been supporting Ukraine to do their utmost to continue so. Estonia, of course, does its part. It allocates 3% of its GDP to its uh, own defense this year. But, but you have told me at times in the past, and you've said this publicly, that, that some European allies are not investing sufficiently in their defense and in the alliance's defense. Do you believe that that is changing, that, that the war in Ukraine is sufficiently changing their commitment? Uh, first of all, we are uh, investing 3.2% of our okay. GDP to defense uh, in Estonia. But, I mean, uh, we are in this war for two years now. And, uh, and I would have thought that uh, when Russia started its full-scale war two years ago, it would have been a wake-up call for everybody to invest more in, uh, to defense. It hasn't been so. But, uh, but now we see that uh, countries are investing and and surely slowly but surely still doing this the question is whether it's it's too late uh, to do it mm. i hope i hope not mm. uh, just a week this week estonia stopped a russian directed influence operation inside your your territory arresting a number of individuals including russian nationals uh, your, your country is clearly a target it has been a target before going back to 2007 a massive russian hybrid attack then and you've been very public saying that if ukraine falls the baltic states including estonia will be russia's next target i wonder do you feel even stronger about that today given perhaps russia's own perception that it is winning in ukraine uh, first of all, I've never said that Baltics will be next. I've said that NATO will be next. Uh, yeah. There is in NATO, we don't have any first and second class uh, countries. We only have NATO allies. So mm. attack on one is attack on all. Mm. If Russia wins in Ukraine, uh, then they could test uh, NATO. And that means all of us, uh, not only uh, those who have a border with Russia. Uh, but uh, the second thing is that uh, you know, we have to be aware that Russia is conducting this shadow war against all of us. And I think here we are very aware of these kind of operations. What they are very good at is sowing the chaos and pouring the fuel onto the fires that are already in our societies. So we have to be uh, very much aware of this. And that's why we are making this public and, and also advocating for others to do the same. Yeah, and you could say that that sort of interference certainly happening in this country as well. Uh, former advisors to former President Trump have told me that if he is reelected, he will take the U.S. out of NATO. And as you know, he recently goaded Russia to attack NATO allies who don't allocate 2% of their GDP to defense. 
which he continues to stand by. Have a quick listen, and I want to get your reaction. I've been saying, look, if they're not going to pay, we're not going to protect, okay? We don't want to be a stupid country any longer. Does this mean you're not going to defend NATO countries if they haven't paid their two point whatever well, percent? Uh, yeah, sort of. It does. If he is reelected, do you have confidence that Trump would order the U.S. to defend Estonia if it were attacked? Uh, well, uh, we do our 2%. As mm -hmm. I said, we do 3.2%. So mm -hmm. he wasn't clearly talking about us. But uh, um, uh, besides that, I was in, in Munich in the security conference, uh, conference and in one debate or panel, I was together with Hillary Clinton. And he, she said there uh, that, uh, listen carefully what Trump is saying, because everything yeah. he says he's, he's planning to do as well. So take him very seriously. And I think everybody is taking that very seriously. It's not a surprise. I mean, he has been uh, of that opinion uh, longer already so so uh, you know the question is what what can we do about this we still think that uh, you know America United States is uh, uh, you know credible uh, most uh, reliable ally mm -hmm. in uh, NATO and it should be uh, like this because otherwise it is detrimental for the security of of the world the Biden administration hit Russia with new sanctions today, some 500 targets in response to Alexei Navalny's death, but also tied to the two-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion. We've seen sanctions through the years on a number of Russian entities, industries, etc. yet the war continues, extrajudicial killings continue. Do you still have confidence in sanctions as a weapon of foreign policy, or is the sanctions policy failing in your view? Uh, well, it's not failing. What Russia wants us uh, to believe is that, oh, you know, sanctions are not working. They are hurting you more than they are hurting Russia. This is not true. I mean, we see their economy in a very, very poor state. Uh, you, you have always expressed hope. And I wonder, as you're looking at this anniversary tomorrow, what are you hopeful about? Well, uh, first of all, maybe we were overly optimistic last year, uh, but mm. we should avoid the trap of being overly pessimistic this year. We definitely have to believe in Ukraine's victory because without the goal, uh, victory as a goal, we don't achieve anything. We'll be watching closely. Prime Minister Kai Kalas, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Out front next, a private investigator working for Trump tonight claiming that he has cell phone data that raises new questions about Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis's relationship with her top prosecutor. Data that my next guest says could be devastating. Plus, we are just hours from the next crucial primary, both Donald Trump and Nikki Haley in South Carolina, making their final pitch to voters. And it got personal. And one year after the U.S. shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon, officials are now tracking another balloon over the Southwest. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. 
All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, a private investigator working for Donald Trump says he has information that could be a major revelation in the effort to disqualify prosecutors in the Georgia election interference case. According to the investigator, cell phone data shows that the lead prosecutor, Nathan Wade, made late-night visits to the area where the DA, Fonnie Willis, lived in late 2021. This is important because both Wade and Willis claim their relationship only started in 2022 after Wade was already hired. When did your romantic relationship with Ms. Willis begin? 2022. There was no romantic relationship with Mr. Wade until early in 2022, whether it be January or February or March, early in 2022, correct? I would say sometime between February and April. Yes, sir. Now, Trump is arguing that if Wade and Willis were dating before she hired him to work on the case, then she personally profited, should be disqualified, and the case should be dismissed. Out front now, Nick Valencia is in Atlanta. Nick, I I wonder what more you're learning about what this private investigator says he uncovered in this case? Well, ultimately, just to be clear, the ultimate authority on this is going to be Judge Scott McAfee and what he allows to be admitted as evidence in this case. He's the gatekeeper on what happens next year, but he has some more information to go off of than he did just 24 hours ago. Steve Sadow, the defense attorney for Donald Trump in this case, suggests in his latest filing that he could prove that Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade were not entirely truthful about when their relationship began when they testified at her disqualification hearing last week. Sadow hired a criminal investigator who used subpoenaed cell phone data and cell phone information, which says that uh, Nathan Wade's cell phone was located in the vicinity of Fonnie Willis's condo on at least 35 occasions in 2021 during an 11-month period. Uh, the report goes on to suggest that Nathan Wade's cell phone was located there several times well into the late evening and early morning hours, and there was at least 12,000 interactions between Willis and Wade by phone. That's uh, text messages and cell phone uh, calls. So listen to, this is very interesting, because listen to what Nathan Wade had to say last week about this condo and his visits there during his testimony last week. Do you think prior to November 1st of 2021, you were at the condo more than 10 times? No, sir. So it'd be less than 10 times? Yes, sir. So if phone records were to reflect that you were making phone calls from the same location as the condo before November uh, 1st of 2021, and it was on multiple occasions, the phone records would be wrong? If phone records reflected that, yes, sir. They'd be wrong. They'd be wrong. 
So now in this filing, Sadow is basically saying that Wade was not telling the truth when he testified there. And just a moment ago, Jim, we got a new filing from the district attorney's office. They are forcefully pushing back on these claims. Not only do they say that this cell phone data is not relevant to this disqualification hearing, but more importantly, they say in this filing that it does not prove that Wade and Willis were in the same place at the same time. Ultimately, it is going to be uh, crucial what is admitted as evidence and the continuation to this disqualification hearing that continues next Friday at 1 p.m. Jim. Nick Valencia, thanks so much. Out front now, let's dig a little deeper. Ryan Goodman, our legal analyst and co-editor-in-chief of Just Security. And Stephanie Grisham, former Trump White House press secretary. Good to have you both on tonight. Uh, Ryan, if I could begin with you, and let's just uh, stipulate here, none of this affects the evidence against Trump and his alleged co-conspirators regarding election interference. This is about uh, a hearing regarding the, the disqualification or whether it is, would be justified to disqualify the DA or the lead prosecutor. But this new cell phone information, could it indicate potential perjury? And if so, would that be disqualifying? So the new information on the cell phone data if it proved to be reliable and the judge found it reliable, mm -hmm. then it could be devastating uh, to the prosecutors because it would basically go to their testimony in which they both said that their romantic relationship only began in 2022. This would contradict that, in which uh, Mr. Wade said that he did not spend the night at uh, the special prosecutor's, uh, sorry, the district attorney's uh, house or apartment. And the evidence here is not just that he entered into her neighborhood, but on one occasion, it says that she called him uh, late at night and then an hour, just about over an hour later, then he appeared at her apartment and was there for several hours. And the other one is that he leaves at like 3.30 in the morning and then he uh, texts her uh, after he returns home just about an hour later at 4 a.m. in the morning. So put those together, it's a deep concern and it could actually implicate whether or not they can proceed with the prosecution. So Stephanie, a private investigator hired by Trump's team, does this tell you something about how worried Trump is about this particular case and the evidence in this case? Oh, absolutely. I think this shows he's very, very worried about it. And, you know, I think that Fonnie Willis has shown to be a very strong woman who's not going to back down from him. And no matter what he says, I think that that intimidates him as well. I think this whole thing is un unfortunate. I don't know why they wouldn't have disclosed this relationship at the beginning. I think that if you're going to go against Donald Trump, you need to know that his team is going to dig and dig and try to find anything that they can. And whether or not he's above reproach, we can all talk about that at some other time, but they should be above reproach if they're going to go after him. So um, I think this is unfortunate. I've said all along, I do believe they should have, you know, stepped aside and let somebody else take the mm. case. But I guess we'll see what happens. Ryan, uh, do you believe the judge will allow this evidence in? And I wonder how relevant you think the Willis filing tonight saying that that data does not indicate what Trump's lawyers say it indicates. So I think the judge is probably going to let it in. It's really up to him and his discretion. But if he doesn't let it in, then we have this cloud that overhangs <laughs> the entire case and the trial and the like. So he might say, look, I'm even giving the, uh, the other side an opportunity to clear their names by letting it in. So I think that's one piece. But then, of course, they, that's exactly right, that they now get to, on the prosecutor's side, try to fend off this information and say whether or not they think it's accurate. Uh, for example, the idea that Mr. Wade visits her neighborhood 35 times over nine months, to me, that particular part of it is not very incriminating or concerning. There's a lot in that neighborhood. It's like a nine-mile radius. Uh, right. So it's the other part that's maybe more of the concern that they need to rebut.
Understood. So, Stephanie, before we go, Trump, of course, has spent a lot of time disparaging Willis. Uh, he's posted about her on social media. He's called her names, claimed she's racist. Uh, Trump's made his vendetta against her very personal. And, and by the way, this is something we've seen in other cases, going after judges, clerks, you name it. What would it mean to Trump, uh, both, I mean, really largely politically, if she were to be disqualified? Well, no matter what, I think whether she was disqualified or not, I think this is going to be, you know, the perfect venue for him now to constantly talk about the fact that he's playing the victim, that, you know, everybody's against him. Um, you know, what he's doing right now, because as as Ryan has said many times, like this, this has nothing to do with the evidence, but this is meant to humiliate them. This is meant right. to put a cloud, as, as Ryan just said, over the case. And so politically, I think he's already got a win here. No matter what happens, he gets to say that this whole process was corrupt. And no matter what anybody, and I believe no matter what Fonnie Willis and her team come back and say, even if they show proof that he was, I don't know, grocery shopping at 3 a.m. Um, in her neighborhood, I think that no matter what, the the base and Republicans will just, just grab onto this and say, you know, the fix is in. Yeah. And, and, and again, we should note, does not affect the quite significant evidence of attempts to overturn the election in Georgia. Stephanie, Ryan, thanks so much to both of you. Out front next. Republicans are struggling to respond to Alabama's controversial Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are babies. Could this hurt the GOP come November? And new images tonight from the spacecraft that landed on the moon as we're learning the robotic lander is on its side, but still alive and well. Tonight, just hours away from polls opening for South Carolina's Republican primary, former Governor Nikki Haley and former President Donald Trump both holding their final rallies in that state, with Haley urging voters to help her stop Trump's march to the nomination as Trump is seeking a knockout blow. I defeated a dozen of the fellas. I just have one more fella I got to catch up to. Tomorrow we're going to win this state and then we're going to tell crooked Joe Biden, you're fired. Get out of here. You're fired. Out front now, South Carolina Republican strategist Chip Felkel and Basil Smeichel, former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party. Good to have you both here. Gentlemen, Chip, if I could begin with you. Uh, from everything you see and hear on the ground in South Carolina, will Nikki Haley close the gap at all with Donald Trump tomorrow? I think she'll close it. Obviously, she's not going to win. Um, mm. I think she'll probably get within 20 points, uh, maybe. She's run an aggressive campaign, but I don't think she'll get much closer than that. Basil, so, so Haley, of course, very publicly vowing to stay in the race, win or lose tomorrow. In fact, she's already planning stops in Colorado, Michigan, Minnesota, Utah, starting on Sunday. You see the map there. In the simplest terms, and it is, of course, her right to keep running, why do you believe she's staying in? Is it insurance policy for the GOP if Trump falters, or is it something else? Well, it could, it's a, it could be a couple of things, and, and they're not mutually exclusive. She could be laying the groundwork for a potential 2028 uh, campaign, as others have said. Uh, she could be you know, making the argument now that she could make later that she was the one that was trying to stop Donald Trump uh, and trying to bring the Republican Party back to where, you know, to the party that she knows and, 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 and was running in uh, 10 years ago. Uh, but there's also this other issue of uh, whether or not the donors, particularly the large donors, will actually uh, see a path for her 
her and try to continue to fund her going forward. Uh, if she loses those kinds of donors, she really does lose the narrative. And then operationally, she loses the ability to, to travel to all of these states and actually do that yeah. kind of groundwork. So um, I, I think both things can be true. But uh, for her to be able to make the case to anyone that she should go forward, uh, she's going to have to get the support of a lot of deep pockets to be able to do so. Yeah. Chip, we already know reproductive rights are already a weak spot, to, to say the least, for Republicans. And uh, amid tomorrow's primary, you're seeing Republicans, including Trump himself, rushing to say they support IVF after the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that, that embryos are, are babies. I, I want to play what Trump just said at his rally. Have a listen. I strongly support the availability of IVF for couples who are trying to have a precious little beautiful baby. I support it. The Republican Party should always be on the side of the miracle of life and the side of mothers and fathers and beautiful little babies. The issue, as you know, uh, though, Chip, is that Republicans are not seen by many voters as on the side of women's right to choose, right, when and how they have babies. And I wonder, even with these strong statements in support of IVF, given it was obviously Trump's decisions that overturned Roe v. Wade, is this an issue of association for Republicans here, right, that, that particularly women voters and others will look at this and say, here's one more thing, right, I have to worry about with Republicans in power? I think you're right there. Um, we already know that abortion is going to be a big issue in the fall uh, with um, even Republican women. Uh, so this was, uh, and unfortunately for Haley, I think she teed this up for Trump with her stumbling the yeah. other day in terms of how she responded. So uh, this is a, you know, Trump seizing the moment to try to get back or push back a little in terms of what's already going to be a big issue for Republicans against Biden. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, because Haley's answer seemed to at least agree with the, the, the point from the Supreme Court ruling, the Alabama Supreme Court ruling that, that embryos were in effect minors, were, were children. Uh, right. As you know, Basil, uh, Democrats, of course, use Roe v. Wade to motivate voters in the midterm, seem to work, and in a whole host of uh, other special elections since then. Uh, how are Democrats looking at this? I've already seen very strong statements from Biden and others seeming to capitalize on this. No, I think, that, and I think Democrats are right to seize on it immediately. I think what you do um, is two things. One, you can attach the most extreme policies in different parts of the country to any Republican, right? Because there, you know, it's, there's some that are going to not be so draconian, others uh, more so. And I think you, you, it doesn't matter. You attack, attach a Republican to the most extreme and use yeah. that and amplify that um, um, for the rest of the country. But also, I think, it, and it is an important point, that Democrats can argue that if you don't like these policies, if you have Donald Trump back in the White House and a Republican Senate and House, you better believe that these policies can become nationalized. And that's a really strong talking point, because I would imagine that over the last several decades, Republicans wanted to do a few things, right? Get their judges, get conservative judges <coughs> in, on the bench, uh, flip state houses, which a lot of them were during the Obama years. Democrats lost a thousand seats. But now you have these states making these very uh, uh, very extreme policies, and uh, you know those are those are policies that even Republicans can't embrace. That's a problem for yeah, them. There's already a, a national <laughs> ban, uh, legislation yeah. for a national ban on the table. That's that right. Many Republicans speak about openly. Uh, Basil, 
Chip, thanks so much to both of you. Thank Lots you. of political developments to watch this weekend. And we will have special live coverage of tomorrow's South Carolina primary here on CNN. That begins at 4 p.m. Eastern time with Aaron and Wolf. Out front next tonight, an incredible new image of the moon taken just before that historic lunar landing. The mission did not go quite as planned, but can we still call it a success? I'm going to ask a woman who's spent more time in space than anyone in NASA's history. And quote, if you don't control the fear, it will swallow you up. Those are the words of Ukrainian soldier as the war enters its third year with no end in sight. We're going to be on the front lines. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, a new image just coming in from the spacecraft that landed on the moon. There it is. The company responsible for the mission also revealing what happened in those tense final moments right before Odysseus landed on the moon. It actually tipped on its side as it touched down. I'm going to pretend that's the rock that the lander's leaning on. We think we came down with, like I said, about six miles an hour this way and about two miles an hour this way. And caught a foot in the surface and the, and the lander has tipped like this. And we believe this is the, surf, the, the orientation of the lander on the moon. Out front now is Peggy Whitson. She has spent more time in space than anyone in NASA's history, was the first woman to command the International Space Station. Good to have you on, Peggy. Thanks so much for joining. Yeah, no, it's so exciting to be here uh, to congratulate the Intuitive Machines team. They really yeah. have pulled off a historic feat. Uh, you know, space flight's never an easy thing. Mm. <laughs> uh, and when you're doing something for first, you know, trying to do a lot of new firsts, uh, there's a lot of problem solving along the way. And yeah. th their team of engineers had to do a ton of problem solving. I and I would call it some really sporty programming and engineering in the last few minutes to make the flight yeah. successful. Yeah, Bill Nelson told me it was a little bit of Apollo 13 in that the final orbit to get that those other sensors up. I, I wonder, when you look at this photo, this photo we should know taken before the landing, about six miles above the surface of the moon, um, what stands out to you? Uh, well, the rough texture, everything, you know, they're trying to land things uh, in a very difficult place. You know, the previous lunar landings uh, have been done in the easier places, but now that we know there's potential for ice water under the surface, this makes it an ideal place to land and to have future stations or, or outposts uh, where we might mine that water. And yeah. so it's really exciting to actually take on this big challenge uh, and go to the harder spot. Let me ask you, I'm just curious about this, because this was something of a machine-controlled landing here. And obviously the advances since 50-some-odd uh, years ago during the Apollo missions have been enormous in terms of technology and so on. But, you know, Buzz Aldrin, I mean, he was controlling the joystick when the lander happened in 1969. Does it show that, uh, that humans help in these situations, right? Because several of the other attempts at landings have had some issues on the moon. 
Well, that's definitely true, but we need to develop these technologies to do some automated maneuvers here and get more probes there. The more we learn about the surface, the more successful we'll be when we send humans back. And so that's part of what uh, Intuitive Machines is doing, is developing those technologies and and uh, new information that we're going to need to be successful in the future. And, and this this is part of that plan, as you as you all know, to get humans not just back on the moon, but but someday on Mars, this this craft would bring supplies to them. Just as someone like you who spent time in space physically as as a human being, how important is it to send people as opposed to just machines and probes out to space to you and for us? Well, uh, doing things automated helps us capture a lot of information uh, in advance. Uh, and makes us more successful when we send humans. Humans have the adaptability and the flexibility to adapt to those changes uh, that we might find along the way. Um, but I think probably one of the most important aspects of this mission is how space is changing. The paradigm of how we do space exploration is really changing. You know, it used to just be a government uh, trying to uh, do all this themselves. And now we are including commercial aspects, much like the company I'm working with, Intuitive Machines. We're all trying to develop new technologies and use that innovative uh, flexibility to go even further. No question, even depending on those private companies. Uh, Peggy Whitson, thanks so much. Great to have you on tonight. Thank you so much. Out front next, two years into Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, you're going to hear from a soldier who is still in the fight, even after it cost him so much, including his eye. And U.S. fighter jets tracking a mystery balloon floating over Utah and headed east. Tonight, two years of bloody, brutal combat, an eye lost in battle, and six months of hell in a Russian prison. Those are the horrors one Ukrainian soldier has endured. And as the war enters another year, he is still in the fight. Nick Peyton Walsh is out front. If one man's story spanned all two years of Ukraine's war, you might expect it had ended abruptly by now. But Alexander is alive. A glass eye from the siege of Azovstal. Gratitude from surviving Russian prisons. Courage from battling in the summer counter-offensive. And now, exhaustion from fighting in Kherson in a daring advance across the river that Russia claimed it ended this week. Two years ago, he remembers shock at Russia's brutal attack, but also Ukraine's bold defense. Serving already four years around Mariupol, he had a friend move his family to Denmark, and slowly his unit fell back to the Azovstal plant unaware of the iconic battle it would become. What was the worst part of Azovstal? Well, 
Is there a flashback that is most vivid to you? Некоторые там флешбеки, да, так сказать, всплывают. Но в основном думаю только за своих пацанов. Те, которые, конечно, потерял, вот, те, которые остались живы, еще даже в плену. 400 colleagues died, 45 taken prisoner, he said. Surrender, the worst feeling. Ну, паническая такой. Ну, не тоже паническая там. Нехорошее чувство было. Чувство бессилия. Особенно, когда у тебя оружие забирают, все, ты как будто бы голый стоишь. На русскую рулетку. Там никто еще не был уверен в чем-то. Six months in prison. The Russian anthem daily, porridge, boiled cabbage, friends dying, and threats of being hung or shot. They ended abruptly. Мы не знали, что нас освобождают даже. Потом пересадили нас в автобусы, куда-то опять привезли. Ну, все же были глаза закрытые, никто ничего не видел. Вот. Просто вывели нас. Все, вы на Украине, это бессмысленно. He rested and returned to fight in the bitter and bloody southern counter-offensive near Urojaine. He says he was grateful to feel fear again. Have your experiences left you feeling more courageous or more fearful on the front line now? Это хорошо. Нет, я не железный человек. Я тоже боюсь. Это хорошо, когда есть страх. Страх, опять же, таки только надо своим страхом совладевать. Если ты, опять же, таки страх тебя поглотит, все, ты не человек. Жалость это плохая черта характера. Надо просто делать свою работу. We talk in Kherson in his break from assaulting Russian positions across the river, a risky advance Ukraine hoped would edge towards occupied Crimea. It hasn't. Many lives have been lost, and the city of Kherson, liberated now for 15 months, is also an exhausted ghost. And while Western support has slowed, Russia has not. Тяжело получили, не спорю. Но не хочется его тратить. Опять же таки, да, их хорошо так прозомбировали русских. Просто количеством нас, соответственно, получается, люди устают. Будет тяжело, но будем стараться. No end is in sight. He says he does, of course, not want his son to fight in this war. He is seven. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Herson. Powerful story. Out front next, a mystery balloon raising some eyebrows at the Pentagon. Tonight, the U.S. is tracking a small balloon spotted floating over Utah by NORAD fighter jets headed east. Officials do not know yet where it came from. They do stress it does not pose a national security threat. The balloon is significantly smaller than this one. That, of course, the Chinese spy balloon that traversed the U.S. last year. You'll recall it used U.S. Internet service providers to send data back to Beijing before American fighter jets shot it down over the Atlantic Ocean. Thanks so much to all of you for joining me tonight. AC360 starts now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.